Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. In this week's New Statesman podcast, we look at all of the results of the votes, what might happen with the May-Corbyn talks, and you ask us, how will TIG and the Lib Dems work together? Hello, uh, it's just me this week, not because Helen has been sent to a gulag for defecting to the Atlantic, but because because of the late votes, we've elected to do one on one of the days she's not here. So I am joined by the full might of the NS Westminster team, Eleni and Patrick. Hello. Hiya. So last night, the House voted through a bill to... I'm considering whether or not to troll Patrick by saying stop, no deal. What I enjoy is occasionally in our room in the lobby, someone will say it and uh, you do this whole body shudder whenever someone says it. So this bill, which which would ask Theresa May to put forward a to proposal... To ask to defer no deal for a length of time of her choosing or, if that can't win a majority, Parliament's choosing. But obviously that's you can only ask the EU for that time. So when the, when the EU inevitably gives a different date, then we repeat the whole amendable process again. So, I mean, as Yvette Cooper and her fellow travellers, you know, Oliver Letwin, etc., all love giving Parliament more opportunities to disagree. And this is one such mechanism for doing that. And Theresa May has already has said that she will seek a long extension, in yeah. a sense, hasn't she? It's, so. it's like the old, it's like as Gareth Snell, the Labour MP for Stoke Central, who desperately wanted to vote for the deal, apparently, uh, the Brexit deal this is, uh, the withdrawal agreement, didn't. And because Theresa May got up at the dispatch box and said, listen, Gareth, I know you want all that on workers' rights, I'll do it. I mean, I do have some sympathy with Labour MPs who say, look, it's the Prime Minister's word, but she has, she's a pathological... Word goer backer on, and reneger on, uh, you know, serial reneger on promises. But I mean, still, it is. Maybe I'm just bitter because we were all in Parliament very late last night, but it replicates a process we already know is going to happen. But you know, you can't trust the executive, I guess. I basically, my, my, from a sharpening our ability to understand what MPs are going to do. It was a hugely invaluable exercise. And then there were a variety of amendments, which we'll obviously talk about as we go through, that I thought were quite interesting. The most significant one being the one tabled by the government, which was basically, look, guys, you can trust us, honest, which got 230-something votes across the whole House. So including, you know, Labour friends of voting for the deal, including the government payroll, which is like a hundred and yeah, and it's just like it's just like that's quite an interesting flaw. And of the you know the kind of thirty odd Conservative MPs who voted to soften or Brexit, who I'm distinguishing from the ones who voted for a second referendum, because I think one of the things that people 
don't seem to understand, including lots of people who are, um, you know, kind of Tory facing commentators, is that basically, if you are a Labour MP who wants to stop Brexit, your second preference is almost always a soft Brexit. Mm. Some of the Conservative second referendumers are just as het up about sovereignty as pro Brexiteers. Yeah, the case that Joe Johnson made yeah. in his resignation letter, he said a Norway style Brexit is as grave uh, an abrogation of sovereignty than May's dud of a deal. Yeah. Obviously, everyone lost their collective shit over him, you know, calling for a second referendum. But there were lots of really revealing things in that resignation. One of them was Norway, no way. And the second was, all right, no deal. Won't be that bad, will it? Yeah, when you talk to Conservative uh, MPs, both ones who have come out for a second referendum and ones who are kind of referendum curious, quite a lot of them... Well, their second preference is no deal. Mm. I thought someone said they were like, we should either be all in or all out. They were like, I don't believe the idea that there's a benefit to having your own trade deals. They said, but I absolutely am sold on the case that there is a negative consequence to being in a customs union you do not set the terms of. So they're not analogous in the same way that you can much more easily go, Labour MPX has voted for this, will therefore vote for this in extremis, etc., etc., but of the of the Conservative MPs who want to soften Brexit, a third of them rebelled yesterday because they don't trust her word anymore. Now, I think that it is entirely correct to look at Theresa May's career and go, yeah, I'm not going to buy a word that you say. However, the slight weirdness of what the bill does is it basically acknowledges that you can't trust the pilot. But then there are so many ways for Theresa May to get out of the legis- of the statutory obligation that she has had placed on her. And I would be slightly nervous about this House's aversion to a long extension and whether or not giving MPs the right to set the amount they want. Well, let's not forget in an earlier iteration of the Cooper Bill, there was a lot of hoo-ha over Labour, of whether Labour, leader, Labour leadership would eventually whip for it because... In the original text of the bill as drafted, it said an extension of X length. Obviously, that sent lots of jitters around the leader of the opposition's office because the thing they don't want to be seen, as in Mansfield or Grimsby or Bolsover or Ashfield or Bishop Auckland, I feel like I'm reading the shipping forecast book for <laughs> the post-industrial North and Midlands, is the, the thwarters or delayers of Brexit, right? Yeah. I do think basically what yesterday confirmed is that the one thing MPs can agree on at the moment is is to delay it. Not to make a decision. Yeah. Oh, one MP actually said who has made a concrete decision on the other said something I thought was really interesting. And what they said to me was the problem now is that if you're like me and you've made a decision, you're getting lots of abuse from one side of the referendum side, but the other side is quite nice about you. They said, whereas the people who are still in this kind of like... I haven't nailed my... Co- yeah, they, they, they've, uh, the subset of Labour MPs who have neither voted for the deal or voted for Joanna Cherry's amendment to have revocation as the legal default, right? So there are two ways to actually take no deal off the table. About 100 Labour MPs have not done so. I'm excluding the ones who've not done so because they're on the, the front bench and have not backed the deal, which is the other way out. And it is true that those 100 are some of the most miserable... It's weirdly, their thing is, isn't they won't make a decision because they know that it's politically alienate someone. By not making a decision, they politically alienate everyone, which means they become more stressed and more unlikely not to make a decision. So you have this weird self-reinforcing dynamic. And once this person said this to me, I thought, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I started calling various people around, and 
A, yeah, the MPs who haven't made a decision are in this kind of like, but everyone hates me. But whether you are a Labour MP who said, I think we just need to back the deal, one half of your electorate has basically gone, okay, yeah, fair enough. And if you're a Labour MP who said, I think we need to have a confirmatory ballot or a second referendum or you know some variant on stopping it, then your constituents are mostly gone, okay, yeah, fair enough. A chunk of it is angry with you, but but the continual shouting from both sides stops. And I think the the big question I have is, is there anything which that chunk of Labour MPs will ever feel safe voting for? Because if they don't, it's quite hard to work out what the way out well, of... The, the, interesting, the interesting quirk in the last round of indicative votes and I'm not sure I've seen this explained anywhere, she probably has, but Lisa Nandy, mm-hmm. who is obviously the tribune of the come on, give us something so we can vote for a deal, also voted for the revocation of Article 50. And do you foresee, either of you, as people who speak to that group of MPs fairly often, do you think they would rather go at the last moment for pulling the lever mark revocation as a means to call this whole botch process off rather than a referendum or a longer delay or whatever? Well, I think it all comes down to what the choice is and whether it's kind of the cliff cliff edge versus one of those. Mm. So I think the reason why people have been voting for the revocation is because it's literally a very last minute, you know, nothing else has been agreed at this point immediately. And and that proposition, Joanna Cherry's proposition, was revocation to stop no deal. And as you wrote the morning after... That you, you read the morning after May's speech the other night, in which most people thought the takeaway was Theresa May opens the door to soft Brexit, Theresa May rips up red lines, when actually it was obvious that from a long, her preference is always going to be to stop no deal via a long extension in this case. No incentive to compromise because you see from that speech her revealed preferences, I'm not going to take us over the cliff, there's no need for any of you to compromise. So I guess where you know this discussion probably falls down is the fact that Theresa May will never show us the cliff edge again. So one of the, the significant surprises of the last fortnight has been that although a large chunk of Labour MPs broke the whip to vote, you know, so 40-something in total, 27 of whom actually voted against, the remainder abstained. However, 40 is significantly lower than the number of Labour MPs who have said you know, my right hand will fall off, my eyes will fall out before I vote for a second referendum. So up until then, I would have said, yeah, it feels to me that the, the most likely route in which Brexit is stopped is is revocation because no one can agree on anything. And that becomes, and several MPs did say to me, look, I think actually I would, they, yeah, when you ask them, the, would you vote for May's deal if she takes you to the cliff? They go, I would vote for revocation first. The thing is, though, I think you're you're correct. And the, the significant bit of that speech was not, Actually, I don't think she did sand down her red line. No, she didn't. And that, that, for me, as as we spoke in the direct aftermath of that speech, she said, I want to reach compromise that delivers on the result of the referendum. Now, we always know she has interpreted that mandate as a mandate for stopping freedom of movement, an independent trade policy, and an end to big budgetary contributions to the EU. Now, and as we've seen from the briefings coming from both sides of that discussion and indeed uh, what Corbyn said to his MPs yesterday, there has been no sanding down of the red lines. The you know the ground for compromise is apparently, OK, as, as you know, Tories have said to, or Number 10 have said to Labour MPs for this whole process, look, there's basically an already, I can't believe it's a customs union in the, in the withdrawal agreement and political declaration. Can we just cut, can you just pretend it's a customs union? Yeah, and we, we had Geoffrey, Co- Geoffrey Cox say yesterday, you know, this is something that I find palatable and that uh, we might uh, end up accepting because essentially it's already in there. Yeah, it's always been a question of branding. Yeah. But both sides are in corners where 
they can't come out and say, okay, fine. They can't climb down because they, they will look like they've given up. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I actually think the both sides frame in, in this instance is, is quite unfair, right? In the, the SNP have, have now moved to a position where they are they have been willing to risk, A, their argument, and this is something which is happening against Scotland's will, mm. because they've said they'll vote for Norway 2.0, and if we get Norway 2.0, it will have been something which was only possible because of the support of the SNP. And they have also, in doing so, made the intellectual argument that they cannot be influential at Westminster, harder to sustain. Obviously, in terms of the economic trade-offs of independence, you're significantly better off in a situation in which... The rest of the UK is in the single market. But, you know, it's still a fairly big political uh, concession. The Labour Party, now, whether or not you agree with this diagnosis or not, which sincerely, and there's a good data-based case to think that they've got a point, believes that moving to a second referendum position and for other bits believes that supporting free movement is electorally toxic, has moved this week to both whip for a second referendum Mm. position and for the continuation of a second referendum. Lots of people are are very angry than the Lib Dems, including some Lib Dems, and uh, TIG slash Change UK have not moved into that position. But asking the Lib Dems to vote against their referendum policy is quite literally asking them to blow themselves up yeah it, it, with, with it, the, yeah exactly it, with the exception of the one Lib Dem MP and yeah. indeed the two Lib Dem MPs who have publicly come out and said I disagree with this uh, Stephen Lloyd in Eastbourne already resigned the whip and Norman Lamb yeah. who represents a very leavy swathe of Norfolk whereas it, uh, the rest you're basically asking them to turn around to the country and say I know that you've slightly started to think that maybe we didn't sell out our principles. <laughs> Actually, we've done it again. That is not a reasonable compromise to expect of a, a political... It's not reasonable to expect a political party to want to go extinct. No one is asking that the Conservative Party go extinct. They're simply asking that they acknowledge that there is a hung parliament and that a customs union, which is a, a pretty rock-hard form of Brexit might be the bare minimum necessary to pass something after the 2017 election. Although Um, the question then is, uh, can a customs union deal pass Parliament? And then the answer is not a clear yes. Yeah, I mean, that is the... I think, and I don't know what your re... So Patrick got hold and published on the NS website, which you can see. And if you've hit your four a month, then you can subscribe and there will be a free... I I thought you were going to suggest a workaround then. That's um, (laughs) manfully sticking to our commercial interests. Everybody should subscribe, Everyone should should subscribe. You get this podcast a day earlier. Yeah, there are no workarounds. No, there aren't. There aren't. Because I would have been really surprised had you suggested one. Anyway, you, know, you got hold of this letter and Jeremy Corbyn had sent to all of the PLP. Now, explain the politics of that letter. There's a there's an interesting genre, subgenre of Prime Minister a PMQ where a Labour backbencher gets up and pointedly asks a question that isn't actually designed for May. It's designed for Corbyn himself, or it's designed as a a flare from usually the Remainy uh, quarters of the Labour backbenches. Angela Smith, actually, she never got to ask that question. You know, she did that before she defected to TRG in, in one of May's statements. And then Owen Smith did it yesterday. And he said, you know, one of the, you know, never say die second referendumers, he got up and said, when you meet the leader of the opposition today, Prime Minister, and he asks you for a permanent customs union, a single market deal, and a confirmatory referendum, right, it is clear that there's a big chunk of the PLP and indeed substantial minority of the shadow cabinet who won't accept anything less than 
whatever the compromise, it has to have a confirmatory referendum tacked onto it. And that was the that was the kicker. That was the last line of Corbyn's letter to the PLP. It said, and I raised a confirmatory referendum with her. This whole letter had said, you know, I, I raised, we had a constructive discussion, but, you know, no commitments were made. We essentially didn't actually, there were no substantial concessions. It ended with, I raised a confirmatory referendum with her. She remained resistant to the idea. Now, there's two reads of that. You know, there is the, don't worry, I've got this. I'm sticking to the policy ordained at conference. There's no question of me reneging on this. Nobody needs to resign the whip. Or there is a second one. Is it rolling the pitch for a, look, we've got a compromise and everything else. The Prime Minister is stonewalling a Brexit deal. But I just think, and, and you know, we have to sign up to this without a referendum. But I just think, given what we know about how the leadership has behaved since TIG split, whipping for a second referendum, etc., etc., I sort of think it's the former. I think it is, you know, that, that, that line underlines the fact that don't think politically Corbyn can agree to anything short of a second referendum and May isn't going to give him one. Yeah, so I think you're probably right on that. I also kind of think, so the, the question I was asking myself watching the votes last night is, assuming they did do a deal that didn't involve a second referendum, I'm not convinced that it's got the votes to pass. Because, so, you know, the, the people like Nigel Adams re- resigned as a minister yesterday. Chris Eaton Harris resigned as a mi- minister yesterday. Caroline Johnson, still a PPS, but, you know, kind of gave a, an incredibly unhelpful question yesterday in and, and BMQ. These, this is before, these were bef- these were all interventions before the talks had started or indeed yeah. reported their first preliminary findings. Yeah, and if something is agreed, half the cabinet is going to resign. The, the wheels are going to come off. Yeah. I mean, in that case, it's very hard to see how you can get more than 150 votes out of the Tory party for any kind of deal than has kind of the sort of like imprimatur of Corbyn going, yeah, we've won, this is a good deal. If you've only got 150 uh, from the Tory side, yeah, let's be optimistic and say you could somehow get to 200. I, I, I don't think that's true, but let's just artificially squint, juice yeah. it to, to make the point. You've then got to get, of the 242 Labour MPs, you've basically got to get most of them, I don't think it's realistic to think that there won't be 80 Labour MPs who won't vote for uh, something if it doesn't have a confirmatory referendum. Because when you add in the kind of... Because it's basically the kind of the four tribes of, 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 of Labour MPs, you know, love Corbyn, hate Brexit, love Corbyn, love Brexit, hate Corbyn, hate Brexit. Wait, what's the one I haven't done yet? Uh, hate Corbyn, love, love Brexit. Brexit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. So if you think about those quadrants, so the if you are... Hate Corbyn, hate Brexit, you of course are going to vote against this deal unless it has a referendum. If you are love Corbyn, hate Brexit, some of you will 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 be upset about it and will vote for you, but some of you are worried that a Lib Dem revival or a TIG taking 5,000 votes off you, either you lose directly to... If you're a Clive Lewis or a Lloyd Russell Moyle. Yeah, or you're, you know, or you're someone, yeah, or you're in a Scottish Labour MP, yeah, then you kind yeah, of yeah. go, do you know what, I don't think I'm feeling up to risking that one. The problem is, you know, is the more you need from a deal to get those MPs, the more some of the hate Corbyn, love Brexit, and indeed some of the love Corbyn, love Brexit people are going to go single market and customs union? Is that is that us? Is that our thing? So it's plausible it could pass, right? But it's, it's not certain, and it's also not certain that it would be big enough the first time around that if, say, 
the Lib Dems suddenly start gaining seats in council by-elections in Romani Labour backyards, then people don't suddenly kind of do the sort of like, abort, abort, mm-hmm. abort, actually reluctantly, I can't do this, you know, uh, having taken soundings, etc., etc. Because I think part of the story of the the much smaller, yeah, okay, obviously 27 is still a number of Labour MPs that makes it quite difficult to work out how a second referendum can happen. But the reason why a number of people who don't want one voted for it is the members do want one. Whereas I think it's harder to rebel on a heart to, to make Brexit harder than, than Corbyn wants it. But I think it's probably quite easy to make it softer or not happen. So I'm not sure it can pass even with... Even, even assuming... if they did... But also, like, I mean, fundamentally, what is the pro of agreeing to a customs union deal if you're Corbyn, where you think it splits the Conservative Party. Well, what's the con? It could split the Labour Party as well. I mean, I just, there's no... And you with no guarantee win. of getting it through. No, well. exactly. exactly. Not, so you split, that so you split your party for, a, a, you know, another MV 2.5 style defeat. I just... Yeah, it, it doesn't, it just doesn't... I just can't see how the various things come together, which I think brings us back to the one thing that, yeah, which does come back to another prolonged extension i guess the one so yeah i I spoke to a conservative minister yesterday who was slightly more optimistic about they basically went they think it's going to pass next week in these indicative votes that will emerge from them failing to reach an accord because their thesis is it's all about the order you do it you have a full vote of the whole house on a second referendum they said that that is the the final blow which that cannot survive they said and then that allows second referendum supporting mps to exit their support of that position and justify it by saying to the constituents i prevented no deal yeah and and essentially then everything else gets voted down and then you end up in a position where people are finally able to go i tried but here we are i think it basically depends on how worried people are about a extension and b on the other hand think that an extension might not happen i can't quite see those two things aligning but i think one of the advantages of a long extension is MPs very badly need a holiday. I don't mean that in a kind of, oh, they have a tough time way, although they do have a fairly tough time. But the number of people who are quite smart, who are starting to do very stupid things because they're tired, is is going up. The number of MPs who are getting in more entrenched and sulky positions because they're quite tired has gone up. I do genuinely think that actually a week's break, some people would come back and go, wait a second, why am I pushing us towards the cliff (laughs) on the idea that, like, the 200 Labour MPs, many of whom only voted for it, having basically been told, don't worry, this is just something you need to do in order to, like, help the party. But the nightmare, from their view, of ballot papers for a referendum appearing on people's doormats won't happen. The the second you kind of go, am I sure I want to do this? Well, of course, the alternative is yeah. they have time to think about it and conclude that they were right all along. It's true. That's happened over <laughs> Christmas before, you know, when MV1 was postponed. Yeah. It's true. I mean, I, I do think um, the weird thing is I basically can't see how an election happens because Conservative MPs don't, really don't want one. But I kind of think that the only thing that breaks the deadlock is another election, not because I think it necessarily changes the result, but because at the moment there's this idea in the back of everyone's mind that maybe an election could fix it and maybe that would be a pain-free way of fixing it, right? Mm. It, while an election hasn't happened, it exists as the one option that doesn't force you to choose one side or another of the of the stop it, soften it, vote for it in its current form axis. And I kind of think maybe once there's an I think only once the election has has happened and left you with the same stop it, soften it, 
then they finally realise that choice means somebody, including yeah. themselves, might have to incur political pain. Yeah, and I think in terms of yeah, the interesting question with the second referendum, right, is the main block on it is MPs believe that if you flirt with it, you are, you're courting your political demise. Because obviously the Labour Party has now flirted with it in quite a big way, I think anyone, any Labour MP who makes it back, right, the argument has slightly been hold below the waterline, right? It is not an existential threat to you as a Labour MP. And ditto if you're a Conservative MP, assuming that you get some kind of hung parliament, you will have tried the thing to prevent having a referendum and it won't have worked. But maybe I'm just being wildly optimistic. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And now it's time for a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. Thank you. The You Ask Us is a kind of a composite motion of a question lots of people have asked since Vince Cable announced he was standing down, since the formation of TIG slash Change UK, which is basically, you know, how are these two parties who are in fairly similar political positions going to work together and how is that going to change over the course of this leadership election I mean you had an interesting story this morning would you like to talk about that yes so essentially what we've seen is kind of shift in in TIG's strategy since they started off so to begin with they were very critical of the Lib Dems and they said you know uh, Lib Dems lost people's trust we're not going to merge with them there's nothing going to be nothing of the kind and they they were really trying to differentiate themselves all the way through and present themselves as something new and fresh and uh, filling a, a gap there. There was a lot of... The Lib Dems were raising their eyebrows at the way TIG was going about this. You know, the, the, they would, there would be cross-party amendments tabled and presented as TIG amendments, and it was all about them. And there was, you know, there was a, a bit of unease about that criticism. But now we've seen a bit of a shift in, in, in that TIG is more willing to kind of work together with the Lib Dems and other parties and create an alliance of anti-Brexit smaller parties um, it doesn't mean that it's all kind of a sunshine and roses from now on and it doesn't mean that there's going to be a merge or anything like that of course because there's still really fundamental differences between them and there's a lot of skepticism in TIG about the Lib Dems and in the Lib Dems about TIG I mean the Lib Dems look at the MPs who have formed TIG and think you know half of you aren't liberals and John Ryan chaired the No to AV campaign. Mike Gabe's defends the Iraq war, and Asubri's got right-wing economic views. So that's the situation. Yeah, and I think it is interesting the way that kind of they have sort of started to work together much more closely with the rest of the the famous five. So Plaid Cymru, Greens, SNP, Lib Dems. I always struggle to name all five, and I don't know why it was the Lib Dems, the group we were literally just talking about. That. Uh, <laughs> 
And, you know, a senior member of TIG said to me last week, well, look, the one thing that's not going to happen is we're not going to fight one another, mm. i.e. The, the Lib Dems. Does that mean they were on field cam- candidates in the same Yeah, and I, think, and I think the thing that they've realised is that at first they would talk lots about, you know, the important target for the Lib Dems is the 8% of the vote they hold, and we just need to signal to those voters that their party is over. And they, I think they've semi-realised that the thing is, is MPs might defect, data can't defect, right? Even if in this, there was some fictitious universe in which the majority of Lib Dem members decided, okay, let's call it quits and join, and the majority of Lib Dem MPs made the same calculation, the invaluable thing the Lib Dems bring to the party is they are the people who can go, we have X number of years of knowing where everyone in Streatham who is really angry about a second referendum lives. Mm-hmm. We have X number of everyone in Southeast Cambridgeshire, sorry, South Cambridgeshire who is angry about this lives. And that can only be achieved through some kind of alliance. I think the fascinating thing, and it's this kind of slightly odd position that the Lib Dems have ended up in by virtue of of Brexit and their own smallness, is it means that both TIG and the Lib Dems, despite the fact that the Lib Dems do now have quite a large Scottish presence, in an odd way start to look in England almost like a subsidiary of the SNP Mm. because they have the same overarching message on Brexit, the same message on the need for cooperation. They've all got kind of political reform, electronic voting, circular chambers style message. And uh, and obviously, uh, uh, lots of the, uh, the nationalist parties both think that they have an interest in, and they kind of think, well, look, if this party is at all successful, it's going to take votes from the other the parties of the union, not from us. And we think that that works pretty, pretty well for us, which may work quite well for them. Obviously, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is quite popular with Remainers in England and is really, really not popular with Leavers in England. But yeah, it's interesting. They are clearly going to form some kind of work. Electoral kind of thing. What it looks like, I think, you know, will hugely depend on the outcome of the Lib Dem leadership election. Joe Swinton's obviously been the one who's been most warm towards them. Leila Moran's a bit more of an unknown. Ed Davey's been more sceptical. So yeah, it's kind of watch this space. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. Our music is Devil by the Devil and is licensed under Creative Commons. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. If you've enjoyed the New Statesman podcast, tell a friend. Leave a favourable review on iTunes. It has some kind of odd implications for how many people see it, so please do do so. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 